Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. You can't go two minutes without hearing about the allure of venture capital and private equity or the cult of entrepreneurship and the startup. But these things are hard. Venture and private equity require large pools of patient capital, deep expertise, and long time horizons. Entrepreneurship requires a unique angle, force of will, operational deafness, and a 24-7 personal commitment to success. This has led to the development of search funds, pools of capital designed to invest in businesses that have gotten off the ground but aren't exercises in organizational change. They're past the startup stage and usually profitable, but could use help in professionalizing certain operating aspects. This has attracted the attention of investors looking for outsized returns and many entrepreneurs looking to run a business without the startup experience. Enter Steve Ressler. Steve is a serial entrepreneur with three exits in the GovTech and software-as-a-service space, including his sale of his first business to Vista Partners. He has lots to tell us about both ends of the search fund experience and the SMB phenomenon. Welcome aboard, Steve. Thanks for having me. So you've got an interesting background. You were a founder of a firm and sold it. You had an exit, which is something everyone sort of aspires to. Talk a little bit about that and maybe how that integrated with your background before you started getting into the search space and the SMB space. Got it. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Yep. My background, and I joke a little bit that I was born to do what I ended up doing. I'm third generation government employee on my dad's side and third generation entrepreneur on my mom's side. So I basically went to University of Pennsylvania on a graduate scholarship, worked in government for five years, and then had an idea for my first business. And that business was govloop.com. And it really, the idea was more or less a mini LinkedIn for government employees. So if you don't work in the government sector, I know, Frazier, you've worked in government, but the cool part is you're all on the same team. So if you work for Suffolk County and I work for the city of New York and you work for the state of New York, you want to connect and share. And that that was kind of the idea of the community. And that company, govloop.com, we had one of those, we just hit the timing right. It was kind of right after Obama was elected and there was a lot of talk on bringing digital into, into government. And so we launched in June 2009, and we sold in just about a year later. I launched in June 2008 and sold September 2009, 15 months, which never happens, right? And startup land. And I was lucky enough, I had a couple of different options at the time. I was pretty young, and we got acquired by a small software company with a CEO who said, you know, hey, we're going to acquire your business, but we're about to get investment ourselves, and we need more executives on our journey. And that's really where I learned business. So I went on a six-year run there. We grew that business to $40 million in revenue, sold it to a private equity firm called Vista Private Equity that's big in software, and then kind of went off to the races from there. So you go off to the races. You've had this experience of founding a firm, which is cool. You had a fast exit, which is atypical, but wonderful for you. You worked for this other group for six years. And then what triggered the notion of going out and searching for other businesses off of the software and the government space that you developed some expertise in? Yeah, you know, really, it was working in private equity. So the first business, you know, my business, we got acquired by a small private equity and sold eventually the Vista, which is a large private equity. 
And kind of being on the executive's team, I saw how they would, you know, buy existing businesses and use one part financial engineering, you know, LBO and debt, as well as operational efficiencies and buying small businesses and really growing and improving it. And I never thought of that as a way to grow businesses. I'd always kind of thought, hey, you're, you know, you create new ideas and build. And so that got me into the idea of entrepreneurship through acquisitions, where I've gotten involved investing, which is about kind of mini private equity, buying small existing businesses and growing them. And so what's the change in dynamics from working for a Vista and the size that's needed to move the needle for them, and then going to something a little bit smaller and I guess in a sense, really kind of diving into the weeds of how the business works and the the relationships with management and how involved you get versus how involved you stay out of it. Yeah. So, you know, at Vista, you're, you're working at operational scale. So, you know, those kind of $10 billion plus funds, you know, they just need to buy businesses of a certain size to deploy the fund and to do tech tuckins. The stuff I've been doing in the entrepreneurship through acquisition community are generally kind of five to maybe $40 million enterprise value companies. And at that size, you'll see kind of typical problems. You know, maybe they'll only have one sales rep. And so you're trying to go from one to three or four. Often you'll see, you know, the financials is maybe cash accounting and they need to go to accrual or gap financials. And so it's a, a lot of really building blocks on how to run a business, but they've usually found some problem that they've solved. So they're really good at that problem. It could be a you know, a very niche software company. It could be a very niche B2B services. So they're good at that. And generally, maybe they're less good at kind of the the building blocks of business. And so you add a professionalism in areas that they just don't have those strengths under the roof. Yep. So it's really a lot in the kind of search world from going from unprofessionalized business to professionalization. And that's usually in the areas of HR, finance, sales, product development, spending money in R&D. Often these businesses make sense. Maybe one owner, you know, owns the whole thing or majority of the whole thing. And, you know, say they're doing a one to three million E, but they're taking a lot of that home themselves, right? So when you're that owner, the question of, hey, do I want to take home a million and a half and not put money in R&D or, hey, taking a million and puts money in R&D, it's not dumb to not invest in R&D, right? Because that's really cash in your pocket today. Right. You sort of help, (laughs) you help make longer range choices in many ways for those folks. Exactly. So when you're looking at businesses that you're interested in acquiring, maybe take us through the analysis a little bit. What is your timeline? What are you looking for in a business? Obviously, that professionalization component where they've got something good going on, but they need help bolstering something that's holding them back. How do you think about that in terms of the time and resources you're willing to deploy for them? Yes. So a lot of this kind of comes out of a whole ecosystem that's been around for 40 years called search funds, which kind of came out of Stanford and Harvard of different professors there. And their kind of checklists on what makes a good business are the same ones I look at today, which is, hey, you know, highly recurring revenue. So kind of revenue that comes back every year. You don't have to think and go win that again. Looking for businesses where low CapEx, so you don't have to go buy a bunch of trucks or put money back into business every year. Generally, you're looking for an industry where it's growing faster than GDP. It's kind of tailwind industry, right? You don't want to go into local newspapers as it's shrinking. And really just an opportunity where they're delivering great value for the customer. So you can measure that in a lot of different ways. If it's a recurring revenue business, that will be like revenue retention or customer retention. You know, you can look at things like net promoter score as another way. But really just looking for, hey, is this a good foundational solid business like if you're buying a house it have good bones 
And then can we put in new talent? So we're often in these businesses, we're putting in new CEOs, either from kind of top tier MBA programs, or sometimes mid-career that are want to transition to a CEO role. And that adding that mix of good foundation with new additional talent, strong investors that are willing to, to invest for a longer haul, you really see great outcomes. So I get in the world of trusts and administration and family ownership and things like that. And so I end up knee deep in family dynamics oftentimes. And where conflict often happens is when there's a succession issue where generation one has built the business and then generation two, there's not an obvious path to leadership for the next stage and things. How involved do you get in that process? And which I guess is sort of a follow on to the notion when you're looking for businesses, are those succession issues something that's interesting to you? Yeah. So as you know, business is personal. So all, all these items, and the smaller you go, the more there's a lot of personal dynamics to pay attention to, and, and hopefully you're solving for the folks involved. And so that can be, I've seen businesses where you know the family has majority of their net worth in this core business, and the founder is kind of wants to take some chips off the table. The son wants to keep on running it. And so part of the kind of the exit plan is have the sun keep on running it, but bringing outside investors kind of de-risk that. So I've been involved with a couple of deals that have been interesting in that way. You know, I've seen some of the, the reverse deals as well, where there's a number of folks in the business. So the founder and, and his cousins and sisters are all in the business and the founder wants to walk away. And it's unclear if the family are staying or not. And then in those businesses, you really need to do the diligence. I was involved in one where basically the cousin was the number one employee of this kind of half a million EBITDA business other than the founder. And the cousin was like, oh, of course, I'm going to stay with the business. And that was not true in the end, which you can kind of tell, right? You know, he came to the small business because of the founder. So very important on both sides to understand the personal dynamics. But from the family side, I think these are also kind of great ways to work with groups to transition in the opportunities and ways you want to do it. No, and it, it makes a lot of sense. And when you're talking about bringing in the professionalization around HR or sales management or something that had been taken for granted, it's something that from a family business standpoint, if the next generation isn't let's say, ready to take on the mantle of being the CEO or taking on higher executive positions within it. This is a gentle way to, A, inject capital into the business to help it grow, but also to act as a development tool to help get the next generation not only involved, but better involved going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen it in multiple ones. Sometimes the person staying wants to be the CEO. And so you're wrapping around resources around them. Sometimes they have an ambition of buying more companies or some capital roll-up that's kind of a little bit riskier for the family, but outside capital is interested. And then I've also seen the reverse where the person that stays in the business is maybe really good at one thing. Maybe they're really good at sales or really good at technology, but they don't want to be the CEO. And so they kind of stay in the business, but they kind of bring that on with a, an outside CEO and some capital partners. So for people who are interested in deploying capital or allocating assets into this search industry where you are finding a business that's already running, you're not having to create the wheel by yourself and get it from zero to one and then from one to 10. And let's say someone comes to you asking, you know, how do I get involved with this space intelligently? How do I think about it? How do I either engage in it without blowing up my own enterprise? And how do I think about it without necessarily being completely passive? Yeah. So, you know, family offices are pretty active in this space. So it kind of depends your personal setup now. 
So I think a number of family offices love this category. And it makes sense because you, especially the first gen of a family office is very entrepreneur and they like being involved with businesses. Those family offices usually get involved two ways. One is invest in a fund that invests in the category. That's probably the easiest, right? Because you're kind of finding a good manager who knows the space. There's a number of funds in, in that world. And then the second would be looking at it deal by deal. And I think the way to get involved in that world, it's really one deal begets one deal. I mean, I started actually investing in a fund. And then over the last three or four years, I've gotten more involved direct and now done, I think, 35 deals in the space. And so that's partly, there's great podcasts in this world, like Think Like an Owner and Acquiring Minds. There's great newsletters in the space. This guy, Michael Gurley, who writes a newsletter. I write a newsletter. There's also great conferences. McGuire Woods throws a conference for the independent sponsor community. Harvard throws a conference for search funds. And so that's probably where I would get going. And then the, the kind of definitive paper, the 101 of search funds, is a Stanford University puts out a study every two years that is analysis of what search funds are, their returns. And the returns are quite compelling. Historically, they've been you know 29 to 35%, depending how you calculate it. And then the definitive book is Buying a Small Business, which is an HBR book by a couple of the professors that teach the class. And so you've gravitated to our deal by deal as opposed to the fund level. Maybe compare and contrast the pros and cons of it from your perspective. It seems to me if you go deal to deal, it's either a lot more work or a lot more oversight on your part, whereas a fund may be a little bit more different, maybe more passive. Is that where your interests lay or are there different efficiencies there that you've taken advantage of? Yeah, I think it's, and I, I'm in, involved in a number of alternative assets, opportunity zone funds for real estate and a few private equity software funds. And I think generally like paying an emerging manager and, and spending less time to do it is generally the way to go. Me personally, I've just really enjoyed it. So it became a professional hobby. And so I probably do 20 of these calls a week and I get a lot of energy out of helping searchers in their journey. So there's some mentorship for me that I really enjoy it. I also found a number of these searchers were buying businesses that were either in software or where government was a large client. So I also could kind of help move the needle directly with my time and energy. And so that's kind of how I got involved doing direct. So I think it's really kind of your time and energy cost. So even some family offices, I found, hey, if they don't have that much staff, they'll just do a fund. But hey, if they build out a pretty big team, they actually kind of like the, they get to decide a little bit what deals they want to do. So back in my past, I worked for the New York State Department of Economic Development, specifically the procurement unit. And so I was there to try to help businesses access New York State contracts, which is its own Byzantine issue, especially depending on what you were trying to access. But for people who are looking at providing the government services and maybe don't know that much about it, what are some thoughts as to accessing it without getting drowned in paperwork and minutiae and a procurement process that that is not really well, not easy to understand by the best of metrics, but very difficult for a young entrepreneur? Yeah, I, I think all the pain of working with the government ends up being your moat of a business. <laughs> so that's kind of how I think about it. And I would argue that I don't think working with the government is that much worse than working with like a large financial institution or large healthcare. Hey, if you compare it to working with a small company, it's much harder. If you compare it to working with a highly regulated other industry, it's pretty similar. And I really think that the main thing to figure out is providing a unique service. So I wouldn't want to be in kind of a commodity market of, hey, 
guess what I do, you know, some project management consulting on the side for, you know, commercial, might as well do it for government. I would want to have a kind of a defined niche. So, you know, hey, for example, if you're doing a specific type of cybersecurity that's real popular with, you know, uh, financial opportunities in New York, that feels like a good service to sell back into the state. Right. And again, niche, then meet as many people as possible so that they understand who they're dealing with and that it's local. That to me always seemed to help a little bit. Uh, if you dotted the I's and crossed the T's, you know, tie sometimes goes to the local guy if you're providing jobs. Yeah. And then the businesses I invest in, so like the one company, Gov Delivery, that I was involved with, we sold to Vista, was, was more or less the MailChimp for government emails and text messages for White House, CDC, I think actually the state of New York. And they provide a unique service. I did one that was for agendas for city hall, town hall meetings, and the live streaming of the the meetings. And so I think that's also different. What I would say is kind of like software that solves problems are generally better businesses, and you can get good margins. The services businesses in government are pretty low margin businesses. It can be a little bit tougher. Got it. So as you look out in the environment and you're looking for businesses to invest in and that take advantage of your software and government experience, but what out there is interesting to you from a thematic perspective? What are you seeing that you that you think is either not popular but should be or is just compelling in and of itself? Yeah. So one thing I, I look for, as I mentioned before, are industries with tailwind. So I'm in a couple businesses where Recent MBAs that happen to be military veterans have bought telecom cabling businesses where there's a a lot of money going in with 5G and some of the potential infrastructure bills. So I like businesses like that. In software, I like very specific niche businesses that are solving a small problem. And I'm actually in a Brazilian software company that's like the ERP, the resource planning for ISPs, the internet service providers. And so it's like a very small defined niche where they're the number one player and have a lot of market to grow. So those have been a couple of the pretty interesting ones. And then over time, I think it's a fun part of the the world to live in. You see all these kind of great niche businesses that you've never, ever thought about, which is kind of fun. So I'm, I'm in a specialty food wholesaler business that's, you know, Cisco's the big gorilla and they have a very defined niche that's growing and going very well. That's a fun business. I'm in one that's a kind of fast-growing e-commerce business, but highly repeat revenue that feels like recurring. So I think like all business, you, you start with the fundamentals of you know the financials and the entrepreneurs involved, and then you kind of dig in and, and find the, the tailwinds of the industry. And that customer love is a big piece for me. Any particular mistakes along the way that taught you an important lesson? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the classic like... Is it the horse or the jockey question? And I, you know, on business, you know, would you rather Warren Buffett's like, you know, wants to buy businesses, you, a management can't screw up, right? And then there's the reverse, like, you know, bet on a great jockey. And I think for me, you need a little bit of both in every deal. I've done a few businesses where I thought it was a good business, but the jockey didn't have like the passion and, and energy of, of true entrepreneurship for folks listen in, it has a ton of ups and downs. It's a lot of hours and and you just need a special type of person. So I found some really good businesses with the right, not the right operator or vice versa, where a really good operator, I do agree with Buffett can't turn around a terrible business. (laughs) And so those are the ones where I've been so excited. It's been like a 10 on one of the, one of the sides of a one to 10 that I, I rushed in. And, you know, to me, it needs to be both these days. 
So you mentioned the military a little bit with one of your businesses, and you're involved in a veterans program. Maybe talk a little bit about that. It's an area that I talked to a fellow, Bill Sweet at Ritholtz, that he has a lot of passion around, and I think it's something that deserves some attention. What is your involvement? Yeah, so I co-founded a nonprofit called Search and Acquire with a couple of friends. One friend, Alex Mears, is a large private equity investor and was in the Navy Special Forces community. And as we started investing together in search funds and entrepreneurship through acquisition, we found, you know, about 30% of the people we're investing in were veterans. And it kind of makes sense. You know, a lot of running a small business is about leadership, right? It, it's, you know, bringing people together on a common cause, clear goals, clear strategy and tacking it and going for it, right? And so as we were helping the searchers, we also found there was unique parts of their journey that was a little bit different. And so often they didn't quite have the kind of financial background of a lot of the folks that had done PE or banking. So they, they need a little bit more help on modeling and doing a, a deal. They also had some really interesting opportunities that were unique to them. So a few of them were looking to buy veteran-owned government contractors, going back to government contracting. They're set aside provisions for different affinity groups and both veteran-owned and service-disabled veterans have special status. And so we've helped a few of them look at buying service-disabled vet businesses. And we also found like a lot of families, people that found companies like to sell business to kind of a younger version of themselves. And we found often veterans who founded businesses wanted to sell to other veterans because it's really their baby. They spent their life's work building this business. And so we met a lot of veteran business owners that said, hey, you know, I'm getting all these emails from private equity, all these random groups. I don't quite trust them, you know, and I want to make money, but I don't know if I need to squeeze every dollar and I'd like to pass it on. And so Search and Acquire is a nonprofit. We do content community events for veterans interested in the the entrepreneurship through acquisition community. And it's been a ton of fun and just a a great way to help an interesting group of individuals find a, a career path with meaning that they really enjoy. Oh, that's really interesting. Is there a website associated with it? Yeah, just searchacquire.org. Got it. So what's next for you? You're busy buying up businesses and taking them to the next level. Is this something you're going to be just continuing on for the intermediate future? Or do you have any other long-range plans that you're interested in sussing out? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I did talk about the last company I ran, which was called Colio and Public Safety, which we, we sold to Motorola 14 months ago. I had one year I did with them and just left them a couple months ago. And so my short term is actually taking a little bit of break, spending more time with the kids and then investing in this category of both search and GovTech. So I've joined a couple GovTech software boards. I've been kind of active in the, the search fund community, going to events and writing a newsletter and helping out. And so that's an area I want to spend more time in. And so that's kind of the short term plan. And I'm always happy to talk to folks too. I think things like this always bring out kind of interesting, smart people. So anyone wants to chat on any of these topics, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Steve Ressler and always happy to connect. Oh, that's terrific. That was my next question is how do we stay in touch with you? And Twitter is always a good spot. Any websites or is there a way for people to get your newsletter? Yeah. So yeah, twitter.com slash Steve Ressler, Ressler at Gmail, R-E-S-S-L-A-R at Gmail. And then the newsletter is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash E-T-A musings. So it's bit.ly slash E-T-A musings. And feel free to reach out, happy to connect and really been enjoying this podcast. So that's partly what I've been doing lately is kind of listening to different podcasts and learning 
about different communities. So love your podcast. I bought the book too. So oh, thank I'm you. Indoctrinated in your ecosystem now. Really oh, that's terrific. It. Well, we were we were introduced by a mutual friend who was terrific on the podcast, and it's opened up a whole new line of thinking for me, and it, especially as far as helping people not on the business side of things, but on the wealth transition side, although they can be very interrelated. But it's made me a better advisor hearing about stories like this and how people go from one type or one level of wealth to a different type. And those transitions often, you know, they cause friction. So talking to folks like you is, it's terrific. I'm thrilled to have you on. Awesome. Thanks again, Steve. Awesome. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.